It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Holy cow, these pictures of flooding in New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania are pretty scary. Uh, These images are everywhere now. Uh, When the New York City subway system is shut down, which almost never happens, particularly the underground stations, and you see all this water flooding onto the tracks and over the subway cars, it's really eye-popping. Uh, when you see uh, rescuers in rafts, you know, paddling their way to try to help people uh, in Philadelphia and in other parts of Pennsylvania. The death toll so far, 14 just in New York and New Jersey. Now, D.C. got hit pretty hard. This is all, of course, uh, the remnants, the aftermath of Hurricane Ida, uh, still powerful uh, winds and rain causing all this flooding. Uh, DC got these monster storms, and there is flooding in some parts here. And there were, and there was at least one tornado in this vicinity, but I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as it is further in the Northeast. Now, I suppose it would be ungenerous of me to suggest that the flooding in New York is getting a whole lot more attention than the continuing. Uh, problems in New Orleans, where the hurricane first struck, both in terms of flooding and in terms of, you know, still close to a million people being without electricity, the small portion of the population has gotten its power back. I, I guess it has nothing to do with the fact that all of the major news organizations are headquartered in New York. I, I'm sure that's just a coincidence, but it, the images are uh, really eye-popping. And, and having, you know, seen storms like this over the years, I, I don't know that I've ever seen uh, flooding quite as bad in those particular states and cities um, for as long as I can remember. So this is um, just a bizarre little episode. You know the uh, salad chain, Sweet Green, it's gotten really popular. A lot of people go there for lunch and do your own salads and so forth. Uh, well, the CEO of Sweet Green uh, is concerned about the pandemic. He's not against vaccines, but he's got a new solution. According to the Washington Post, Jonathan Neiman has decided that what would be really good for battling COVID would be to outlaw junk food. I am not making this up. He said on a post on LinkedIn that obesity is a root cause of many health problems. He claims, I haven't checked these figures, 78% hospitalizations due to COVID are of people with obese or overweight conditions. In other words, making them more vulnerable to the virus to get more sick than maybe the average person. And so his solution, well, the government should either ban or tax unhealthy food. Uh, We quote, we clearly have no problem with government overreach on how we live our lives all in the name of health. What if we made the food that is making us sick illegal? What? This is insane. So we're just going to say you can't buy Twinkies anymore. Uh, you can't buy, uh, you know, where do you draw the line when he says junk food? Is it all candy and cakes and cookies? What about fried chicken? That make, can make you, what about, you know, eating too many Big Macs? Who gets to decide that? Uh, and th- there's a bit of big backlash against the sweet green guy. Uh, yikes, this is uh, incredibly fat phobic, said one person who commented on LinkedIn. Uh, have you considered how our healthcare system systematically underserves people? were considered to be in those groups. So look, I get it. It's good for his business, right? He serves healthy salads, although, you know, depending on what kind of dressing you put on, you know, if you pile the bacon on, maybe it's not that healthy. And he's like, just get rid of this stuff or make people pay more money for it. I mean, clearly not well thought out. Uh, a little political note here. Uh, the House uh, January 6th committee, 
the one that is mostly controlled by Democrats, of course, uh, after Nancy Pelosi's battle with Kevin McCarthy, has made Liz Cheney, the Republican congresswoman and former House GOP whip until she was deposed from that position by Kevin McCarthy, um, the vice chair of the committee, making her the number two. Now, this is an extremely unusual thing for a majority party to do, usually the chair and the vice chair, but you have the ranking minority member who represents the other side. But in this case, you only got a couple of Republicans on the thing. Cheney's one of them. It's actually pretty shrewd politics by Pelosi because it gives them political cover. They can say, well, yeah, this isn't a Democrats-only thing, even though we kicked off uh, three of the members that Kevin McCarthy wanted to put on this panel. Look at Liz Cheney. Oh, yeah, sure, she's an anti-Trump Republican who believes um, that the pre- former president you know, should be held accountable for his role in what happened in the Capitol riot. But she's a Republican. There's an R next to her name, so we've made her the number two. Um, The chairman of the committee said this is great. Um, Liz Cheney says every member of this committee is dedicated to conducting a nonpartisan, professional and thorough investigation of all the relevant facts and so on. This is the same committee that has now asked for the phone records uh, and the electronic records of various uh, Trump aides and even some members of Congress who happen to be Republicans. So Andy Biggs, a uh, Republican member of Congress who is uh, head of the Freedom Caucus, uh, did not like this, and he wrote a letter, a copy of which was obtained by the New York Times, in other words, this PR person gave it to the paper, uh, saying Congresswoman Cheney and Congresswoman Kinzinger, Adam Kinzinger, the other uh, GOP member, are two spies for the Democrats that we currently invite to the meetings, their caucus meetings, despite our inability to trust them. So he wants them kicked out of the Republican caucus. They shouldn't be able to go to any meetings because they can't be trusted and they're actually collaborating with Democrats on what? On an investigation to find out what really happened, what caused, and what what were the security breakdowns of the January 6th riot. What a horrible thing. All right. Number one, story number one, getting all kinds of media attention is what happened just a few minutes before midnight last night with the Supreme Court and the highly restrictive Texas abortion law. So for most of yesterday, there was like the Supreme Court is silent. The Supreme Court hasn't said anything. Well, literally moments before the deadline, the Supreme Court in a five to four ruling decided not to take any action and no emergency action to block this new Texas abortion law from going into effect. And the four dissenters, each of whom did their own um, dissenting opinion, were the court's three liberals, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, and joined by Chief Justice John Roberts. Now remember, what's at issue here is not whether or not the law will ultimately be upheld. It's not a hearing. It's purely whether on a procedural basis the Supreme Court should step in and, you know, I didn't go to law school, but you don't have to be a genius to know that the standard here is, will there be any irreversible harm? Will there be irreparable harm to uh, people who would be damaged by a law that's going to be, that is in the process of being challenged in the court system? And if so, why don't we put it on hold until we can have a full hearing on the merits? So uh, the, the justices who opposed this, who were on the losing side, particularly focused on the procedural aspect here. 
The court's order is stunning, said Sotomayor. Presented with an application to enjoin a flagrantly unconstitutional law engineered to prohibit women from exercising their constitutional rights and evade judicial scrutiny, a majority of justices have opted to bury their head in the sand. Then we get to John Roberts. The statutory scheme before the court is not only unusual but unprecedented. The legislature has imposed a prohibition on abortions after roughly six weeks and then essentially delegated enforcement of that prohibition to the populace at large. The desired consequence, says Roberts, appears to be to insulate the state from responsibility for implementing uh, this regulatory regime. He says, although the court denies the applicant's request for emergency relief today, the court's order is emphatic in making clear that it cannot be understood as sustaining the constitutionality of the law at issue. And others went on. Elena Kagan talked about shadow banning, the shadow docket, I should say. In other words, the Supreme Court actually does things not by taking it up, having both sides come in, having interested parties file briefs, having a full hearing, and then issuing a ruling. It does things by either deciding to intervene or not on an emergency basis on what's been called this shadow docket. The majority's decision, Kagan says, is emblematic of too much of this court's shadow docket decision-making, which every day becomes more unreasoned, inconsistent, and impossible to defend. So let's get to the substance of this. This was very, you know, there's been so much commentary in the media now focusing on the dissenters and how horrible this is, um, and a lot less attention given to the people who are pro-life and who think that this is a good step. But on the procedural grounds, I'm sympathetic to the idea that why can't Texas wait until there's a full judicial hearing here? So let's get into the substance. In order to try to avoid um, defeat in the courts, as has happened with many, many attempts by individual states over the years to restrict abortion in ways that may or may not be constitutional. Remember, in 1973, the Supreme Court upheld the right to abortion using privacy grounds that a lot of legal scholars said didn't really fit. But nonetheless, it is now an established precedent. It's half a century old. Every Republican nominee to the high court goes before the Senate and says, I'm going to be very, very careful about overturning any precedent um, because it has been around so long and is the basis of so much law. So what the Texas law does is says that once a heartbeat can be detected in the fetus, which is roughly six weeks, um, you can't have an abortion anymore. Under the law upheld in various cases by the Supreme Court, the, the abortions are deemed to be legal up to 20 to 22 weeks. So this is a drastic move by Texas if you base it on what the law has been nationally until now. And to bring this away from the abstract uh, legal arguments, Texas now has about 24 abortion clinics in a huge state, you know, second most popular state. There were about 40 before 2013 when the state legislature imposed an earlier round of restrictions and some of these uh, clinics had to close. But here's the nub of it, which is usually when you uh, have restrictions, you have the state, state officials who have to enforce them. And then that provides a basis for an appeals court or SCOTUS to say, no, 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 state officials can't do this because it's taking a, a step 
into unconstitutional territory. What's in this Texas law, the new one, is that, and by the way, it has no exceptions for pregnancies resulting from incest or rape. And even the most restrictive state laws have often made those exceptions, you know, the theory being that if a woman is raped or is, I would say, a victim of incest, that she shouldn't be made to carry the baby. Well, Texas law doesn't allow that. But it bars state officials from enforcing it. Instead, it says any private individual out there can be deputized to sue anyone who performs the procedure or aids and abets the procedure of abortion. So this is, you know, being called by critics vigilante justice. And so you can't sue the patient. You can't sue the woman who is seeking the abortion at a clinic. But if you're a private person, you don't even have to live in Texas. You can just say, I don't like abortion. I'm going to file a suit. I'm going to pay the legal fees. You can sue the doctors. You can sue staff members at clinics. You can sue abortion counselors. You can sue people who, people who help pay for the procedure. You can even sue the Uber driver, according to the New York Times, who drives the woman to the abortion clinic. And if you win, you're entitled to $10,000 and to recover your legal fees. The prevailing defendants, if defendants win, they can't get their legal fees back. So it's like a bounty, you know, people who feel strongly. Look, I understand. This is a very moral issue. People feel very strongly on both sides. I get that. Well, there is in polls majority support for Roe v. Wade. Um, the people who are opposed to it, who would like to see it overturned, you know, feel very strongly either as a matter of religion or their own moral code that abortion is murder. But we have a constitution in this country. We have a Supreme Court that has spoken. So the idea that any individual, not even living in the state, you don't have to show that you, you know, often in, to have a, a standing, what the lawyers call standing, you have to show that you're harmed or that you have some skin in the game, that you're affected. You, know, you could just be some lawyer who doesn't like abortion. You could come in from any state and you can file a suit and you can sue the doctor, you can sue the clinic, you can sue the counselors. So naturally, this is aimed at putting so much pressure on the remaining 24 abortion clinics that some of them feel like they just don't have enough money to fight these lawsuits and they shut down, which would make it even more difficult to get a legal abortion in the state of Texas, even within um, the six-week period allowed for by this law. And this will stand now until the case finally makes its way back to the Supreme Court. So there was an incredible rush to see patients six-hour waits as many people, as many pregnant women wanted to make sure they could get an abortion before this law took effect. Many of them were finally able to get the procedure, so the demand then went down. But there was just this incredible chaos in Texas. So we'll see where this goes. It's going to be a major political issue, and ultimately it'll be decided in the courts. But striking that, I mean, this is what you have with a 6-3 conservative majority. But again, the issue here is not that five justices are saying this law is constitutional. We'll see how that plays when we finally get to that point. What happened is that five justices say, we're not going to intervene, and we're going to let this take effect in Texas, and we'll wait for the case to come to us. All right, number two, uh, the continuing fallout in Afghanistan from the final U.S. exit. So Washington Post, uh, you know, there was a series of news conferences yesterday, Pentagon and so forth. Washington Post reports, and there, everybody's got a story on this, that the top U.S. military official, this is General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, told reporters yesterday, it is possible, that was his word, possible, 
the United States will coordinate with the Taliban in the fight against ISIS, which is an enemy of the Taliban, as well as, of course, civilized people everywhere, and, of course, the U.S. government. Uh, General Milley didn't make predictions about potential collaborations with the new rulers of Afghanistan, who are trying to form a new government. That could happen today. Quote from Milley, we don't know what the future of the Taliban is, but I can tell you from personal experience, this is a ruthless group from the past, and whether or not they change remains to be seen. But he said, in war, you do what you must, even if it's not what you necessarily want to do, which is his way of saying, these are the people in charge of the country, we lost the war, we have no more soldiers there, uh, we have to rely on the Taliban to continue to facilitate evacuations of the Americans who were left behind, not to mention uh, Afghan allies who have been left behind. Uh, and, of course, uh, this larger question about dealing with them to stop terrorism. So, um, also we have the Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, telling reporters, uh, I think it may be at the same news conference, that the U.S. had worked with the Taliban on a narrow set of priorities. It's hard to predict where this will go in the future with, the respect, with respect to the Taliban. So the reason the Taliban are making all these nice-sounding pledges is there's a huge humanitarian crisis building there. People uh, are having trouble getting food. Uh, emergency UN food is going to dry up. Foreign aid has long ago dried up. People have to wait on long lines uh, at the bank to get any money. And um, the only leverage, really, that the Western world has and the U.S. has is that the Taliban, the country, could be in crisis. I mean... Various people, now that the airport is shut down to Afghans, are trying to get away, uh, you know, by car or bus or truck to neighboring countries. But these neighboring countries are saying, well, we can't take anymore. We've reached our limits. So you can have all these refugees. It's going to be an absolute mess. And by the way, uh, I talked yesterday on the podcast, and I have more on this in my column today on Fox which is um, the way in which I had predicted, and in the column uh, says that, you know, an hour after President Biden gave his emotional speech about ending the war and why we can't ask the 1% of the people who put on the uniform uh, to continue to fight these endless wars, um, MSNBC just kind of moved on. On the 5 o'clock hour, 7 o'clock hour, 8 o'clock hour, people like Nicole Wallace, Joy Reid, Chris Hayes, uh, they got to the war eventually, uh, but they were all leading with the Madison Cawthorn story. Some freshman Republican member of Congress making uh, comments that were provocative or, or incendiary, depending on your point of view. Well, last night, well, last night, the war continued to fade as there was a lot on the uh, the flooding from the storm. I get that. There was a lot on the Texas abortion law. I get that. Um, but you had to wait a long time to get to anything about Afghanistan. And so what I had, the question I had posed in the column was, uh, will the damage to President Biden, the undeniable political damage from the disastrous U.S. exit, be eased, be mitigated if, I said in a month or maybe three months or six months, the media just move on? It didn't even take a day. Uh, you know, now eventually, of course, when there's no uh, more Americans involved, you know, the public tunes out, it's not good for ratings, and you turn on to other more pressing matters. But wow, I mean, it was in the blink of an eye. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Let's go to number three. And on that point, 
is a piece in The Federalist today uh, saying that, look, the media are very happy to move on. Chris Bedford writing that the media want to move on and it will probably work. Uh, He says the White House press corps is largely made up of camera-ready vanity projects more interested in their Instagram followers and TV outfits than holding to account an administration they're politically aligned with. Well, I'm going to dissent from that because people think about the briefings, they think about the TV correspondents. Um, But you have a whole bunch of newspaper reporters, some of whom appear on television, but, you know, who are trying to do a good job. And by the way, if there's one subject that the press corps as a whole has done a very good job on when it comes to President Biden's relatively short tenure, it's the absolute fiasco in Afghanistan. And uh, but now the question is, what happens next? So this Federalist piece says that the brief glimpses the public was treated to over the past two weeks of Pentagon reporters asking real questions and demanding answers Uh, might have been an impetus to improve if the average pretty face at the White House had either the shame or ability to do so. But they don't and they won't. Wow, he really seems to think that television people are just put on the air for their looks. Um, Can't be too hard on the White House press corps, though. They're just doing their jobs. Uh, And for the most part, that job is just looking really good on TV. All right, as a TV guy, I'm going to say it's a little more complicated than that. You kind of have to know what you're talking about, particularly if you're a reporter. Maybe a little less so if you're a professional bloviator. Um, He goes on to say that a lot of people in D.C. and New York are just doing their jobs. Take the average news anchor. You know, their job isn't easy. They have to read off a teleprompter for hours on end in between questioning random faces popping up on a screen for two minutes at a time. Not exactly shoe leather journalism. Again, kind of a snarky take. Trust me, as an anchor, it's more difficult than that. But look, is it harder to be a war correspondent than to sit in an air-conditioned studio? Is it hard to be a beat reporter um, than somebody... Look, there is an art to interviewing people and asking tough questions and getting a lot of information uh, out of them in a short period of time. I mean, I don't want to defend everything on television news. But he goes on in this vein. Obviously, a lot of this is sarcastic. Uh, Finally says, what do you think is going to happen to the editors of the New York Times if the Biden loyalists who make up their readership think they've focused a bit too long on those American hostages in Afghanistan? What do you think is going to happen if a Republican is elected because of it? We know what happened last time. They felt responsible. A lot of long public confessions, a lot of tears, a lot of feelings. Uh, The corporate media want to see this administration get back to the things they elected them to do. Well, I certainly would not dispute for a nanosecond uh, that Joe Biden got far more sympathetic coverage during the campaign than a guy named Donald Trump, the former guy. Um, Joe Biden got 81 million votes. Donald Trump got about 74, 75 million. You can't put that all on the media. We're just not that powerful. All right, number four. You know, I've been watching since early June the number of new daily average COVID cases creep up. I remember when it was 10,000 and 20,000, and I've talked about this pretty regularly. Maybe you're tired of hearing me say it. You know, then it was 50,000, then it was 100,000. And the, it, the, it had kind of peaked during the worst of the pandemic at over 200,000. And I'm thinking, well, it's not going to get that high. Well, now, as of today, average new cases each day, 166,000. So it continues to rise and rise and rise. Which brings me to Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, who has, I think, the most lucrative podcast in the world. He made a deal with Spotify for, what was it, uh, $100 million or something in that 
vein. Um, Joe Rogan yesterday told his 13 million Instagram followers in a video that he has COVID-19. He said he was on the road doing uh, some comedy shows in Florida. He had a headache. He says, quote, just to be cautious, I separated from my family, slept in a different part of the house. Throughout the night, I got fevers and sweats, and I knew what was going on. I got up in the morning, got tested. Turns out I have COVID. He says he now feels great after one bad day. That's good. He says he has thrown, more controversially, he says he has thrown the kitchen sink at it, including ivermectin, the medicine used to kill parasites in horses, other animals, and and humans. FDA tweeted, not at Rogan, but just in general, you are not a horse, you are not a cow. Seriously, y'all, stop it. Does the FDA uh, tweet in that kind of language? That's surprising to me. So, that's right, $100 million when Spotify acquired Rogan's uh, podcast and his podcast library. And look, Joe Rogan is not one of the four radio talk show hosts who, who, are, who were aggressively anti-vax, who unfortunately have now all died from the virus. But he has been skeptical of the vaccines. But here's the thing. He's a stand-up comedian. A lot of things he says just to get a reaction. He will be the first one to tell you this. So it was back in April, I remember talking about this on the podcast. He said, well, you know what? Young and healthy people, they don't need to get vaccinated. Because they're strong and they're probably not going to get it. There was an outcry. And he backtracked and he said, I'm not an anti-vax person. I'm a moron. I believe the exact quote was effing moron. You shouldn't listen to me about such things. He completely backed off. But then some months later, he was he was criticizing the push for mass vaccinations and kind of raised the question about whether vaccines actually help prevent the spread of this virus. But he did say this is neither pro nor con vaccine. Look, if Joe Rogan says don't take vaccination advice from me, you should believe him. So now he has COVID. And he also has been critical, and so have lots of other people, about vaccine requirements, vaccine mandates. If you want to go to Madison Square Garden in New York City, he said he wouldn't force anybody to get vaccinated just to see a stupid comedy show when he performs on the road. No, no uh, less a figure than Anthony Fauci uh, said on the Today Show, he was critical of Rogan and said young and healthy people should absolutely get vaccinated. And I think we've, I think we know this now that we've seen more people in their 20s, you know, coming down unvaccinated almost without exception. So Rogan finally says, my apologies to everyone. Obviously, it's nothing I can control. It is what it is. Crazy times we're living in. But a wonderful, heartfelt thank you to modern medicine for pulling me out of this quickly and easily. Well, a lot of people think that taking this horse dewormer doesn't do anything. On the other hand, a lot of people convince it helps. So I don't think it harms them. They can take it. And one more note on this, um, having to do with Candace Owens, who is a very strongly anti-vax, who talks all the time, a black conservative activist. Well, I'll have more to say about this, I think, tomorrow. But she reports that she gets tested regularly for COVID because she goes on the road and does these shows, and a lot of these venues require it. And some lab in Colorado refused to test her and sent a letter saying, we're not going to give you the test because of who you are. We don't agree. We think you're spreading misinformation. What? So they're going to essentially saying, well, we don't care if you get COVID. We will not give you the test. That is friggin' outrageous. All right, number five. You remember Piers Morgan. You remember he was on a show called Good Morning Britain. You remember the whole flap about the Meghan Markle 
And Prince Harry interviewed with Oprah, where Piers went on the air and said, well, I don't believe anything that she says. I wouldn't believe a weather report from Meghan Markle and was critical of the Oprah interview, was critical of Oprah, and so forth. Then, when he got challenged, he stormed off the set. Uh, the company that puts that show on in England asked him to apologize. He would not, and he left the job. ITV is the company, big network in Britain. And, um, you know, it was Morgan who did that. He didn't have to walk off the set. He didn't have to refuse to come back. So now the British media regulators called Ofcom, we don't have that here in the States, and that's a good thing. It's, it's gobsmacking to me that there's a British media regulator that gets to weigh in on whether journalists are fair or not. But they don't have the history of the First Amendment. But Ofcom has ruled that it's okay for peers to have said these things. And remember, there was part of this was a, a mental health advocates saying, well, Meghan Markle talked about having suicidal thoughts and was really uh, not good for peers to do this. Look, he's a loudmouth. That's what he does for his living. That's how he's become so famous. 57,000 complaints to Ofcom, including one from the Duchess of Sussex herself. So she complained to Ofcom. So Ofcom says... Um, that while Morgan's comments were potentially harmful and offensive to viewers, the regulators took full account of freedom of expression. Under our rules, broadcasters can include controversial opinions as part of legitimate debate in the public interest. The restriction of such views would, in our view, be an unwarranted and chilling restriction on freedom. So Piers actually is celebrating this. He feels vindicated. And one of the things he says is, do I get my job back? resounding victory for free speech, he says. Do I get my job back? Well, the answer is undoubtedly no, because he's burned that bridge. And again, if he hadn't walked off the set, I don't think he, I think he'd still be on Good Morning Britain. There's a lot of speculation. Yeah, he wanted out. He was going to do other things. Um, so far, he hasn't. Doesn't mean he won't. Uh, but understandably, Piers Morgan is very happy about this situation. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you'll subscribe, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or any other place where you get your friendly neighborhood podcasts. I'll be back with you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.